Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, as a sword person, let me invite you to my online community, swordpeople.com, where you can interact with all sorts of people who are into historical martial arts in one way or another, without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customers. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. There are four levels of membership. Free, this gives you access to the main discussion areas and events, etc. Or, at £5 a month, you can join Support Sword People, which gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform, and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Then there's the Solo Scholars at £20 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone, which are solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and recreating historical swordsmanship from historical sources. And finally, there is the Mastering the Art of Arms level at £40 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses, such as the Complete Longsword Course, Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and How to Teach. There are no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that, which means we are entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it, so if you're thinking about joining, please do consider one of the paid options. So, if you'd like to join us and think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, because the code of conduct is absolute and enforced with an iron hand, which is why it's such a nice place to spend time, go to swordpeople.com and click Request to Join. It's fast, easy, and straightforward. You can get Sword People on your phone or other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Denise Cabrera, who is a Kunstesfechten practitioner at Arte del Combate, a publisher of historical martial arts books, primarily on La Verdadera Destreza in Portuguese, at AGEA Editora, and a graphic designer. He is currently researching historical martial arts publishing and has a lot of questions for me. So, without further ado, Denise, welcome to the show. Hi, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to nice to meet you. 
we in the pre-interview chat, you said that we have met once in person at Ellis Coryell, which was many, many years ago. So yeah. it's nice to kind of you know, face to face again. So um, I ask everyone in on the show whereabouts they are. So why don't we start with that? Whereabouts in the world are you? Okay, um, I am in Santiago de Compostela, which maybe oh, okay. some people okay know because of the way of Saint James. Um, yes, the medieval pilgrim uh, uh, path. I, I have a friend who did the um, Santiago de Compostela pilgrimage last year, and she wrote okay. a book about it, which I've just read. <laughs> so it's, it's top of mind. Well, it's 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 an experience. It's a it's a nice experience, and for people who are interested in history, it's um, I think maybe a way of connecting with that history. Sure. Have you done um, it yourself? Yes, yes, I have. Not not uh, I mean not not like the uh, long one from uh, Rotes Valles or. Or something like that, but um, maybe two weeks uh, walking or okay. something like that. Yeah. So a couple hundred kilometers, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 More than that. Uh, maybe uh, three hundred. I think. Okay. Well, that's, that's quite a long walk. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. It's it's really fun. Yeah. And I imagine there's lots of other people doing it at the same time. So. Yes. It's it's. Um, it's very nice to uh, do it with people that uh, you know because that's mm -hmm. an experience. Um, but it is also very interesting to do it alone because um, there are other pil pilgrims on the way and uh, you cross them and there is this kind of uh, connection because you're all sharing sure. the same experience. But at the same time, uh, you don't really know them. So well, it's it's interesting. A bit like Hima, like going to a Hima. Either. Sure. And, and if you live in Santiago de Compostela, then presumably... For you, the experience of arriving there would be quite different from someone who's never been there before. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, it's it's getting home instead of getting yeah. uh, to your destination. Have the trip because you're going to get back. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. You just sent me off. A, we, I had a, an idea in my head of what we're going to talk about this morning. And you just sent me off on this <laughs> sidetrack where I'm like, well, ah, okay. No, come on, guys. <laughs> I, I will bring us back to topic. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. So, um, how how did you get into historical martial arts? Um, well, I, I have um, okay. Uh, the the um, the blame is on my parents, of course. It's always uh, <laughs> it's always because of your parents. Right? Sure. Um, uh, my father used to to tell me the stories of um, the the King Arthur and the the, the knights of the Round Table, ah, okay. and, uh, all this kind of stuff. So uh, that was always uh, like a background uh, romantic uh, stuff going in my head, and I like history because of that uh, too. And um, I did uh, begin practicing um, uh, Eastern martial arts, uh, judo initially, and Aikido later. Um, but um, at some point, I was uh, I had just finished uh, my um, university studies, and um, I didn't have the the, the same schedule, so I, I couldn't continue practicing Aikido. So I went looking for something, and there was this group of, of people of uh, um, well, people my age. Uh, we we were very young uh, back then, <laughs> and. Um, they were um, trying to set up a historical fencing group. And I said, okay, this, this uh, seems interesting. Let's go take a look. And I uh, joined them and, uh, well, it really was interesting. And uh, it's been uh, 15 years since. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and is that Arte do Combate? Yeah. Excellent. That's okay. So you've been with the same, the same group. 
your entire historical martial arts career? Yeah, well, we did change uh, name and uh, reorganize a couple of times, but um, it's essentially the same project, or, or, sure. or at least for me, uh, because I am currently the longest running uh, person in, in that project. Oh, okay. um, it's the same same uh, trip. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, and you got into publishing how? I mean, how, it, it, it takes quite a lot of quite a lot of energy and some money and you know a, a lot of shall we say like desire to do it to actually publish yeah. a book so what what made you decide ah do you know what actually we're just going to publish a book why not let's do it okay um well i i was doing HEMA already at the time mm-hmm. and um, i was working as a graphic designer and um, i have always uh, loved the um uh, the physical aspect of design, you know, designing for paper as opposed sure. to designing for the web or, yeah. or things like this. Uh, so I was uh, actually working in the in the world of, of publishing, of pro- professional publishing uh, already. And um, uh, when we began researching uh, the kind of treatises uh, that that existed in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula and uh, which times those were and this kind of things, we realized that many of them weren't um, really available. Uh, uh, available. I mean, sure. um, at the time, uh, what was most better known uh, were the the Italian and German schools of, of medieval yeah. fencing and maybe then some of, of the French uh, stuff and some of the English stuff. But um, uh, about what was going on in the Iberian Peninsula, nobody knew. So um, I met uh, Manuel Valle, uh, which uh, maybe some some of the listeners of the podcast will know. Um, uh, he is uh, well, he's a, he's a medical doctor, a doctor, but um, uh, he has always had an interest in, in history uh, and in fencing, and uh, uh, he was already researching. Uh, the the Iberian um, treatises, and um, he has written a, a very extensive bibliography about five hundred pages, um, documenting all the all the known books on the matter. Um, so um, I met him, and uh, I I already knew Tom Puey from from Coruña, from uh, Academia de Espada, and uh, it was like the circumstances, uh, a group of people um, uh, uh, met. Um, who had like uh, this very different um, sets of of, um, of skills. Uh, I knew how to lie at books and I was working in the publishing industry. So I, I was like the technical side of, of things. Manuel had all the theory. Uh, Tom had a, a lot of um, experience with practice. Um, uh, Diego from Orense too. And we began to, to create like this work group and say, okay, let's... Uh, uh, let's get these these books that uh, nobody knows about because they are um, well they, they were in public libraries but nobody was yeah. paying attention to them and uh, republish them. Um, we didn't have to spend a lot of money because we did most of the work. Uh, I right. did the layout, the 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 design and these kind of things, and um, I could uh, afford um, better prices <laughs> because <laughs> I was into the business. So right, sure. Yeah, I mean, when I'm producing a book, one of the biggest expenses is layout and cover design because I I know enough about graphic design to know that I need a professional to do it properly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's 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 never a good idea to design your own covers unless it happens to also be your job. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, now, 
Uh, the reason we decided to get on this call is because you sent me an email saying you're doing some research on uh, historical martial arts publishing generally. And you sent me this very, very long questionnaire. And I looked at it and I was like, to answer those questions properly, I'm going to have to spend hours typing. And that doesn't seem like a sensible okay. use of time. So why don't we get on a phone call or even an internet call thing and like do it verbally and then I can send you the recording and you get the information that you need and I don't have to spend half a day typing. So what what a, what can I do for you? Okay, it, it makes a lot of sense to do it this way. So uh, sure. let's get on with it. Uh, okay, the, the, the idea, um, for, for some context for the listeners, <laughs> the idea is um, that, uh, well, we all know that uh, books are very important in HEMA because, I mean, that's where it comes what, from, right? Yeah, it was made, it's what makes it historical. It's, it's the H yeah. in historical martial arts oh. is we get this from books. Yeah, yeah that's the idea. Um, so um, there is this, this uh, special relationship with, with books and, um, uh, and it actually has a, um, uh, a long tradition. I mean, uh, people like Paulus Hector Mayer, um, in their way, they were already uh, gathering old techniques and republishing them. That's right. Uh, and other after them. So um, this is nothing new. Uh, but uh, let's say that uh, we are living maybe in, a, in, in some kind of, of historical martial arts uh, renaissance. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, sure. And in, in this context, there are several people uh, who have been publishing their work. Um, there are a few, uh, not many, but um, uh, four or five uh, publishing houses which are specialized in, in this, in this uh, topic. And, um, uh, well, I, I do have a professional interest in um, knowing uh, how uh, publishing works uh, for sure. uh, small-scale um, uh, projects or businesses. And, um, uh, and I also have this interest in HEMA and how it is developing, developing in the present. Right. Um, so I say, okay, let, let's take a look at uh, what we are doing with, uh, with, uh, uh, with book publishing now. Uh, with, with, uh, sure. um, with the idea of publishing old uh, treatises or, or maybe new interpretations of, of these old treatises, but in the present. And uh, um, what are the difficulties that people face and um, uh, what uh, uh, tools maybe we have uh, um, available. And, and also to open a discussion, because the, the idea is to turn this into a paper, uh, to present it at, at this year's um, Dijon uh, event, and, um, and maybe also... Uh, carry a bit of a round table there, perhaps, uh, because other publishers will be there too. Sure. And uh, it's, well, kind of a, a professional, uh, um, semi-professional um, uh, endeavor to, to know better what we are doing. No? Um, so the, 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 the kind of questions I am asking is, uh, well, of course, uh, for people to, to first identify the, their project, um, what is it that they are doing? The, the, um, I'm calling it project. project. Yeah, I'm calling it project because some people are uh, like uh, uh, personal publishers. They, they are publishing themselves, uh, self-publishers. Um, some of us are, are um, um, associations or, or, or clubs, um, not strictly businesses in the, in the uh, um, monetary gain sense. And some yeah. people, they are professionals or at least... Um, they are taking it semi-professionally, trying to make part of their living out of that. Uh, so it's like a broad um, scope. Okay. And um, so um, well, 
maybe this is this is obvious, no? You you are a Kaiwinsor. Uh, <laughs> we already know um, what you do and uh, and what you publish. Um, what would you say your your focus is on, on publishing books? Um, uh, okay, um, I don't actually have a. F I don't think of it in those terms, right? Okay. Um, I I do the work that I do, and I find out almost by accident that I have a book that needs publishing or a course that needs publishing. And I don't necessarily distinguish between one thing and the other. So, I mean, for example, last year I produced a course on how to teach historical martial arts, right? Mm -hmm. I thought that was going to be a book and I tried to write it as a book and it didn't work. And then I produced it as a course and it worked really well. And now with the transcriptions from the course all tidied up and everything, um, I have actually like 90% of a book. So it's probably going to be a book as well. Um, but the, I mean, the book publishing side of things represents, depending on the year, somewhere between 40 and 60% of my income. So it is a, it is a major part of what, you know, keeps a roof over my children's head. Okay. So I take it extremely seriously in that regard. Okay. Um, but also, you know, I publish stuff as the whim takes me. I'm not terribly like focused and strategic about that. So, for, for example, I realized um, I needed to print out the Getty manuscript, right? Because mm -hmm. I wanted a paper copy that I could scribble on and do stuff with. And I looked at the cost of taking it to a local print shop to get printed out, and it was going to cost me about 50 quid. And I thought, hang on, this is a bit stupid. This is a lot of money just for a bunch of loose things in a loose bits of paper in a shitty plastic comb binder, right? So I thought, well, hang on, I have all of the... Sort of all of the, the infrastructure for, for publishing books. So why don't I send these files to my layout designer, get her to lay it out as a book and produce a cover for it, and then produce it as a reasonably priced facsimile that is literally two-thirds of the price of getting it printed out in your local print shop and put in a shitty cone binder, but you get a nice shiny hardback that is priced at the point where you can throw it in a fencing bag you can scribble all over it. You can, you know, if you want to, you can cut pieces out and paste them in other places. I mean, you can, you can do anything you want to it because it is a price that way. Right. Um, which is in marked contrast to Michael Chillister's absolutely gorgeous, leather-bound, hand-stitched, glorious reproduction of bliss and awesomeness. Right? And so um, my facsimile is aimed at throwing in fencing bags. Michael's facsimile is aimed at preserving and reproducing the source in the most accurate way possible so that if, you know, I don't know, an earthquake hits the Getty Museum, being where it is, that's not unlikely, and, and the Getty manuscript is swallowed into the bowels of the earth never to be seen again, then at least we have these fantastically high-quality reproductions um, that, I mean, he goes to the point of reproducing the collation of the manuscript, I know, right? I know. The, the ordering of the, of the, in case listeners don't know what that means, it's, it's the way the manuscript was originally stitched together, the number of leaves that are folded over and put inside each other and then stitched into a stack of these quires or signatures, as they're called, which is the manuscript itself. He has reproduced the way it's stitched together. 
which is something that nobody will ever see unless they rip the book apart. <laughs> right? It's, like, it's, it's fantastic. Mine, not produced that way at all. It's printed on demand mm-hmm. and it's the pages are kind of glued together in the kind of modern fashion. And it is, as a work of art, it is not even close to what Michael's is. But it's, it's aimed at any practitioner of Fiori's art can get a good quality printed copy of the manuscript without any interference with, you know, people fiddling about putting translations around those. It's, it's, it's the cheapest way to get the closest you can get to just sitting with the original manuscript and flicking through it as if you owned it. Yeah. Um, they, they can cover different needs, I suppose. No? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 you know, bless Michael for doing what he's doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I am. I I buy everything he produces, whether I can afford it or not, because <laughs> one has to support this kind of artistic lunacy because it's majestic. It's majestic, but you know his goals are a little different. Um, yeah, and that makes sense. That that is one of the things I I want to explore in this in this right. kind of survey because um, uh, at present I think there is such a need for Hima books. Yeah. Um, that all of the authors uh, and the publishers and self-publishers self that, that we are do, uh, doing this, um, we are not really competing with each other. We are complementing no. each other. We are trying to cover uh, a, a vastly huge area. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So maybe to kind of put it in context, I should take you yeah. through the publication of my books before I yeah. went self-publishing, why I went self-publishing, or why I okay. started doing it myself and where I am now. Would that be useful? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I wrote my first book starting at about 1999-2000 and this was long before the whole sort of the machinery of publishing books became available to the non-professional um, and so I sent it off to a publisher in the States called Chivalry Bookshelf and they published it and it sold really well and they did a second print and you know, it was published in the traditional sense where You know, they ordered a print run and then they distributed that print run to various places. And it went well enough that my second book, The Duelist Companion, I sent that to them and they published that in the same way. And there were issues. Okay, to put it, let me be really specific. Uh, some years later, there was a court case in which eight of the authors that had been published by this company sued that company um, for non-payment of royalties. Okay, and in the the result of this was that I got the copyright to my books back and no money, but also I was required to sign a non-defamation clause, which means I have to be very careful what I say about these people who published my book and never actually paid me any money. Okay. Um, okay. So I have to stick to the facts <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> um, okay, so... So at that point, I had already submitted my next book. Actually, no, I had a, okay, my second book came out in 2006. My first child was born in 2007. My second child was born in 2008. I wasn't doing a lot of writing at the time. And I think in 2009, I produced The Little Book of Push-Ups, which I put through Lulu, because that was the kind of the first sort of print-on-demand, sort of aimed at sort of consumer-level writers as opposed to publishing houses um and i also had it printed locally and sold it 
sort of hand-sold it in my cell and, and sent copies out to people and whatever. And then I was writing the um, the replacement volume for The Swordsman's Companion, my first book, which okay, for people who are relatively new to historical martial arts, 25 years ago, we knew practically nothing. And this book was intended, in, The Swordsman's Companion in 2004, was intended to give people a way of starting historical martial arts, starting longsword stuff, even though we didn't really know what we were doing, right? So by 2008, 2009, I was literally eight years of full-time teaching into and, and full-time historical martial arts instruction. Um, and so I'd done a lot more work on Fiore, and I had a much better idea of Fiore's system as opposed to general longsword. And so I wrote um, the book that became The Medieval Dagger and The Medieval Longsword. Okay, it was originally one book, and I sent it to the publisher, um, Freelance Academy Press. Uh, it was founded by Greg Mele, Christian Tobler, Tom Leone. I think somebody mm-hmm. else was involved too, but I've forgotten. And they, they took the book. They recommended splitting out the dagger stuff, so I, I wrote, I kind of adjusted it so that there was The Medieval Dagger and then that's followed by the medieval longsword. And they were incredibly slow getting the medieval dagger out. And they were even slower with the medieval longsword, right? And so while I was waiting for them to publish the medieval longsword, I also did my first Vadi translation of Veni Vadi Vici. And I had the copyrights, the copyright back for... Um, Sultan's Companion and the Duo's Companion. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'll just self-publish these. Why not? So I did a bit of you know, research and, what, and whatnot. And of course, I had a company in Finland, which was like my, the business side of my, my work life. Um, and so this was before you could get a sort of individual level account at Lightning Source, which was the, the print-on-demand side of the Ingram Publishing empire um so i had a commercial account with them and i started producing i I found a graphic designer who laid out who relayed out and put new covers on sultan's companion and the duo's companion and i published those and then i did a crowdfunding campaign for what became veni vadi vici the translation of vadi that i did that wasn't very good and it's been pulled since and massively improved Um, and so by the time I'd been waiting two years from sending in the finished manuscript and all the photographs. By the time I'd been, I'd waited two years for Freelance Academy Press to publish The Medieval Longsword, I already published three books myself. Literally, in the time that they failed to publish one, I had published three, and I thought, fuck this, this is ridiculous. So I took the book back from them um, and published that myself. I did a crowdfunding campaign to raise the funds to publish it, and that went really well. And I guess in, that was 20, I want to say 2014. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, 2014. So, um, Many of the Longsword came out in 2014, and at that point, I had, under my own roof, as it were, I had the Sorcerer's Companion, the Duelist Companion, Veni Vadi Vici, then the Medieval Longsource, that's four books. And just the Sorcerer's Companion by itself 
made me about $10,000 in the first year that I published it myself. Okay. Right? So I was like, hang on, hang on. This is much better for me than getting somebody else to publish it. So what does the publisher do, right? They hire a layout person and they hire an editor and they hire a cover designer and they put the book, they edit the book and they put it together and they put it into various print distribution systems. I could do all that myself and actually make a significant income. I remember, historical martial arts are my profession, right? All of my income, all of it, comes from historical martial arts related activity like teaching classes, writing books, producing online courses and so on. Yeah, so by 2014, I really didn't have any interest in getting some other company to do what I could do perfectly well myself with some paid help. Um, and then I have control of the book. So, you know, if I want to do a rebrand, change the cover, change the blurb, try an advertising campaign, all that sort of stuff, I can do all that without having to argue with um, the so-called publisher. Yeah. That, I think that, that makes total sense. Um, and I think many authors have discovered that. Yeah. And, and the thing is, to my mind, there is absolutely a role for publishers, um, particularly in the historical martial arts space, right? So there are, particularly, for example, for authors who have a day job, and historical martial arts are their interest and their hobby, and they've written a book. I mean, classic example would be, for example, um, Dirk Hagedon. You know, he's got a day job, yeah. right? And he produces these stunning books. He's also a graphic designer, so he has a hand in the layout. Yeah. But it doesn't make sense, really, for him to go through the hassle of publishing it himself if there's a professional publisher that will do it for him. Also, if, if you're a career academic and you get your income from getting the next academic job, like a professorship or a lectureship or whatever, your books only count if they're published by the right kind of publisher, right? Yeah. My books would not count in that regard because they're not produced by an academic publisher. Yeah. So um, if you're publishing for sort of career purposes, you need to go through a publisher. And if you're publishing um, as a hobby and you don't need to make any money out of the book, then it makes sense to go through a publisher. But if you're trying to make a living in the historical martial arts space, I think it makes a lot more sense to do it yourself. Yeah, or, or even if uh, you have the, the skills, because... Uh, Not everyone has maybe the same kind of uh, skill set or, or, or ability oh, I, that you may have. Yeah. But I didn't have uh, those skill sets. But right. maybe you have the, the ability to learn them. No, because my primary skill set is hiring good people. I mean, well, that's literally. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. But, I, but again, I, <clears throat> I didn't find my graphic designer who does my layouts. I asked friends and a friend of mine knew someone. And so I... I had them. And likewise with, like, I mean, the actual process of publishing, once you have the print files and the ebook files and the cover files, it is just admin work. It's grunt work. Um, and yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, it takes a lot more skill to market a book than it does to publish a book, right? Publishing, you can, I, I literally, I taught my assistant how to publish a book in a morning, right? Mm -hmm. Once you've got the files, Okay, you need to upload it to here and you need to put this metadata in there and that metadata in there and this blurb in there and this blurb in there. And, you know, there are plenty of people with that skill set, so that can be hired out as well. 
And then it, it's the real difficulty comes in selling the book, not in actually getting it from, I have the files, now I need to put it into production. Okay. We do have a section on, of the questions which are yeah. related to sales. Maybe this mm -hmm. is a good point to tackle them. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, so if the hardest bit is selling the book, mm -hmm. um, how do you do it? How do you okay. go about it? Before I answer that specifically, I should highlight that I got into this space very early and my first book sold really well without me doing anything. Okay. okay? Um, and this is largely because there wasn't any other book on the subject. Yeah. And so I have, I have benefited from getting in very early, which is something that someone coming into the space now can't do. Okay. So, um, anyone listening who is thinking about doing this, you can't reproduce the early part of what, what made it relatively easy for you. Okay. But the, the key things for selling the book, it needs to be professional. It needs to look professional, right? You know, professional cover, professional interior, or at least professional looking interior. Um, it needs to be indistinguishable from a commercially published project. Yeah, so once once you have that, you have a professional looking product um, and it's it's in the system, I would highly recommend making it as wide as possible so people can stumble across it on whatever platform they like buying books on. Okay, there are exclusive options you can go with, like for example, um, Amazon's uh, Kindle Unlimited, I think they call it, or Kindle Direct, something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I never do that because my goal in publishing is to make it as wide as possible so that anyone can find it. Mm -hmm. Then um, you have to find out where the people are who want to read your book or who are likely to want to read your book and you have to, and you have to go to where the people are, right? Which back in the day was Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, places like that, right? Okay. The problem I had with the whole social media marketing thing is that social media and my brain do not get on very well. And I have massive ethical problems with the business model behind Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Right. Right. So the received wisdom, which has been true for at least 100 years, is the money is in the list. Okay, And what that means is your income will come from the... People on your mailing list, back in the old days, that was paper mailing. These days, it's emailing, but the money is in the list. In other words, you need to start a mailing list and you need to get people onto your mailing list to who you can then tell about what you're producing. Now, people yeah. don't want to join a mailing list generally just to be told what to go and buy. There needs to be a bit more to it than that. And there are lots of really good resources out there for... Um, how to start and run a mailing list. Um, probably the best is a book called Newsletter Ninja. Um, but the best overall um, sort of information on how to market a book is a book by Joanna Penn, who incidentally is the friend of mine who did that uh, pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Okay. Um, she wrote a book called How to Market a Book, and it's fantastic. Um, it's, it's maybe a little dated now, some of the specifics... May, may not have 
may not still be workable. I mean, it's always the case when you're talking about anything done on the internet, like this company you recommend today is gone tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the principles that she recommends have been basically how I have made a living since I read that book in about 2015. Okay. Um, so... I mean, basically what it boils down to is content marketing, which is you produce stuff that people like for free. Mm -hmm. People who want more free stuff exchange their email address for the free stuff. So they're now on your mailing list. And then once they're on your mailing list, you give them more free stuff and you talk to them and you're nice to them and whatever. And then when you have something that you want them to go and buy, you tell them about it and they, they dash off and buy it. Now, to my mind, the... The gold standard in that kind of marketing, I know I'm doing my job properly in that regard when, let's say I've produced an online course and I send an email out to my list saying, go buy this course. Um, I get people emailing me back to say, thank you for letting me know, right? Okay. Because the essence of marketing really is tell people about things they want to know about. Right. Imagine, imagine your favorite band was coming to Santiago de Compostela and they were going to be playing a gig and you didn't hear about it. But the lead singer dropped you an email the week before and said, Denise, we're doing a gig in Santiago. You've got to come. Here is 20% off the ticket price. Go. Right. Yeah. You, you, you'd be, you wouldn't be like, who the fuck is this bloke telling me to go to his bloody concert? You'd be like, Oh my God, that's fantastic. I'm so glad I didn't miss it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what ethical marketing is really about. Um, it's not persuading people to buy something they don't need. Um, it is letting people know that the thing that they want is available. And uh, maybe making it noticeable uh, over the noise, the background mm. noise of everything. I mean, uh, yeah. we get ads for lots of stuff. Yeah, and, th and this is also where a newsletter works really well because yeah. social media platforms are inundated with ads. Now, I yeah. do use ads on Facebook because they work. Yeah. Um, which is annoying and I I have to kind of hold my nose every time I pay Facebook like give give fucking Zuckerberg more of my money but the yeah. thing is there are a lot of people who are on Facebook or whatever who aren't yet in, in my ecosystem and I need because of the way Facebook works these days I need paid ads to reach those people to rescue them from Facebook and get them into my ecosystem yeah. which is much nicer Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the fundamental trick of marketing is being heard. And the best way to be heard is to produce quality content that people like and share, but not, not that kind of, you know, like and subscribe. Yeah. You know, click that button down below. None of all of that shit. But just, you know, if you write something that is valuable to people, some people will eventually find it and then they will go, oh, that's so cool. I will share it. And then they share it with their friends. It's uh, producing the, the real stuff, no? uh, real content, yeah, uh, exactly. valuable things. And, yeah. and uh, like good, for content marketing, good content is useful on its own. Yeah. It's not, it's not um, you don't give them half of an exercise and they have mm -hmm. to pay for the second half. You give them all of the exercise and then say, if you like that exercise, which is, I don't know, strengthening your quads or whatever, then you might like this set of exercises, which is our complete leg program. Yeah. There is more of this, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Like, um, you know, I, I did a translation of Fiore's Longsword material, um, which I produced mm -hmm. as a book called From Medieval Management to Modern Practice. 
about 80% of that book is available for free on my blog, mm-hmm. right? In the kind of second draft level, should we say. So it's got the transcription, translation, my commentary, and a link to a video for people to go and do it. And it's most of it. So all of the uh, sword in one hand, guards and blows, and the Zorro section, all those three sections, all of that content is up on my blog, right? And it's free. And people can yeah. just go and they can do whatever they like with it. It's theirs. Um, I didn't get around to publishing it on publishing the stressor section on my blog because I had it all ready quite quickly and I was like, oh, hang on, I'm ready to do the book now. So I just produced the book. So um, each one of those sections, mm-hmm. um, so sword in one hand, mechanics, guards and blows, Zogalaga, Zogostrato, each one of those is available as a separate ebook on Amazon, but it's all available together as from medieval manuscript to modern practice, the long sword techniques of Fiori de Liberi, um, as hardback, paperback, and ebook, right? Because people will happily support authors who are producing stuff that they like. Yeah. It doesn't have to be novelty. It doesn't have to be, um, well, I will, I will tell you the translation of the first half of this sentence, but you want the second half, you have to pay. Yeah. No, no, no. It's like, here is the stuff. It is free, but if you want it in a convenient form, go buy this book. Or yeah. if you want it in a convenient form, go buy this course. Or a nice one. Um, sometimes, uh, well, at least I do, and I know many people do. We buy books just to have them there. Yeah. Somewhere near, like. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, nothing wrong with that. I, I know one guy who every time I bring out a book, he buys two copies in hardback, one to keep pristine, and one to read. Bless you, Sven. You are my kind of reader. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Okay, so um, that has been very thorough and and, uh, very interesting. Um, I loved uh, hearing um, your thoughts on on particularly on how to market the book because um, I know uh, I am already getting uh, feedback from some authors for this survey. And I uh, know that uh, many uh, just uh, put the book out there in whatever platform they are using. It is available, but if yeah. people don't know about it, um, it gets to to, to to very few people. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and one thing I've tried is going on people's podcasts and talking about my books and stuff, and that that can work. Mm-hmm. Um, but at honestly, it's. That the content marketing approach is probably the most effective for non-fiction. Um, and even for fiction, you know, I, I know plenty of fiction authors who have one book that's in a series. They're writing series. First book is free. The second book is free if you sign up to the uh, free and widely distributed so people can get it and they read it and they like it. And they get to the back of the book and it's like, oh, I want the second volume. Oh, I can get it for free off the author's website. They go to the author's website. They download the book for free. That puts them on the mailing list. And then they go buy volumes three, four, five, six, seven. Right. So the first two volumes are effectively free. Um, and again, that's, that's a good model if you write in series and it's a good model mm-hmm. if you have all of that extra material. But if you just have the one book, I mean, one thing I've done is like for my theory and practice of historical martial arts book, mm-hmm. um, I had a, a chunky like 80 page, um, the first 80 pages of the book. And it didn't finish in the middle of a page. It finished at the end of a chapter, right? Because I'm not a dickhead. <laughs> Some people do do that. Um, that. That free sample was so that people could read it and go, 
this is absolutely my kind of book. And they can see the table of contents and go, yes, I want to know about these other things as well. And then they go and buy the book, right? Okay. So you, you can you can have like a, 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 help, a free sample that helps to sell books too. Okay. Those are, um, those are interesting ideas. I'm sure people will, will love to hear about them. Um, you mentioned ebooks. Uh, yeah. Um, ha, uh, let's talk a bit uh, about them. Um, sure. Do you have uh, numbers or, or maybe a rough estimate of um, uh, your readers, whether they prefer more the paperback version or, or uh, digital versions? Most of my readers clearly prefer to read on paper. Okay. Right? But the ebook is really important for several reasons. The ebook serves many purposes. Firstly, most importantly, if somebody can't afford to pay for the book, I will happily send them the ebook for free, right? Okay. Because I can I can send the ebook for free without it costing me money to print and ship. Makes sense. Right? So so I can distribute it at any price point, including free, realistically. Yeah, I simply can't do that with a printed book. Secondly, some people do prefer to read ebooks, right? And they like it on their Kindle, their Kobo, their iPad, their TV screen, or what? I, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's really not down to me to tell readers in what format they should want to read my book, right? So I think that every book should be available as an ebook, and if it isn't, there's something wrong, yeah. right? Something, something is something has gone wrong because the information in the book, if it's worth the effort of publishing it. It should be published in every reasonable format, which is also why I'm in the process of producing audiobooks. I've got an audiobook of theory oh. and practice. I'm working on an audiobook of, um, I'm also doing a rebrand for the Windsor Method because absolutely nobody bought the Windsor Method, the principles of solo training. So I'm rebranding it, new title, new cover, and making an audiobook as well. And hopefully that will, that will, um, do a bit better. <laughs> um, okay. But, But the the critical thing with ebooks is they are just so easy to distribute. And here's the thing: people worry about piracy, right? And let me just knock that on the head right now. Obscurity is a problem. Piracy mm-hmm. is not. Okay, because the most pirated books are the most popular. And actually, Neil Gaiman did this experiment where um, he released his, his book was released in Russia, and they. He took a PDF of the book and released it himself on a pirate site, right? Okay. And a whole bunch of people downloaded it. Something like 80,000 people downloaded it. Sales of the actual book in Russia went through the roof. Okay. Right? Because, okay, the sort of person who will download your book for free and read it for free on a pirate website, firstly, is not your customer anyway. Mm-hmm. Secondly, might become your customer if they can see you, the content. And yeah. so when the, they pirate the book, they read the book, they go, oh my God, this is amazing. Love the book. And then they go buy a hardback perhaps, or, or maybe they just don't have any money. But in three years time, when they get a decent job, they go, oh my God, these books, I'm going to go and, you know, this author's brought out a new book. I'll go and buy that one. Yeah. So, so piracy, I mean, When I notice piracy, I do fire off a legalistic email and pull it down. But that is only for one reason, which is you have to protect your copyright to maintain your copyright. So if somebody can demonstrate that I have copyright on something and I'm not protecting that copyright, 
then then it basically makes it possible for people to do all sorts of other things with my content, which I may not approve of. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I think ebooks are really important. But also, there's uh, are you familiar with the concept of price anchoring? Right. I produce all of my books in ebook, paperback, and hardback. Yeah. Primarily because the hardbacks don't sell very much, but they're very profitable. You make a lot more money on the hardback than you do on a paperback. Okay. Um, the ebook is the cheap end. The hardback is the expensive end. The paperback is in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's ten for an ebook and twenty-five for a paperback or forty-five for a hardback, the paperback, sorry, the hardback makes the paperback look cheap. Um, if it was just paperback and an ebook together, the paperback would make the ebook look cheap, and the ebook would make the paperback look expensive, okay. and that's okay. both of that is bad. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So by producing it in all three formats, that's maybe one reason why I make most of my book money comes from paperback sales. Yeah, because that's that's where the anchoring works. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Um, when you uh, produce the the ebooks, um, do you use like an automated uh, automated conversion from the uh, okay. from the layout of the uh, paperbacks or the hardbacks or Or do you lay out in special? Okay, here's what I do. Um, Most of my books are laid out by a professional book designer called Beck Picard. Mm -hmm. And Beck sends me the interior print files and the ebook in EPUB, PDF, and Kindle format, right? And how she produces that is her business, frankly, literally, literally. I pay her. And she sends me these files, and that's that's that. But I also, for books that don't require sophisticated layout, um, I use a program called Vellum, which automatically produces the interior print files at whatever size you want and ebooks in whatever format you want. And get this, um, it is so clever that if you format the links correctly in the back of the book, so like to your other books, mm-hmm. when it exports for Amazon, it's all Amazon links in the back. When it exports for Apple Books, or whatever they call them now, they keep changing their names. It's all Apple Book links in the back. If okay. it's for Barnes and Noble, it's all Barnes. And so, so wherever the customer buys the ebook, the links in the back to go and buy all the other ebooks is on the same platform, which is genius. Okay. Uh, yes, but I've I've moved away from that altogether anyway. Because what I do now is I am most interested in getting people onto my own store to buy direct from me. Right mm-hmm. for two reasons. Firstly, I make a lot more money per sale. Right, and secondly, um, if they come and they buy it from me, then they end up on my mailing list, and I can I can maintain that relationship, and then hopefully they'll go and buy more of my stuff in the future. Okay. Right. So I was I was very careful about making sure that the links in the back of Amazon books went were all Amazon links, and the and now it's like no no no. All of the links are going to be. I haven't, I haven't processed my back catalog for this yet, but all of my links will be to my store, so people can come and buy my books from me because it's better for me. Okay, so a question which kind of overlaps with the next one: mm-hmm. um, When you sell the eBooks, um, uh, you mentioned that you use PDF. Um, you also produce them for for uh, the iPad, um, for for the Kindle. Like yeah. uh, specific formats for each of the different platforms, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, 
the well, of course, the the, the proprietary ones like like um, uh, Amazon, and Adobe, Apple, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they they, they manage uh, their own stuff and the well, rights management and all, all, all these kinds of things. But uh, for things like PDF, which I know that you already sell. Um, you just uh, make the, the the files available uh, for a price. Um, people buy yeah. it and they can download it, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. No um, I'm a bit more. It's a bit more sophisticated than that. I use a company called BookFunnel, where yeah. I upload an EPUB and a PDF, and they handle the side loading onto customers' devices. So um, you buy the ebook in in all formats from me. You mm-hmm. get a link to the BookFunnel page and you tell BookFunnel what formats you want and it sends them to you. And if you have any difficulty getting them onto your device or whatever, BookFunnel professionals will Mm -hmm. help you with the tech side of things. Right. Interesting. So, so it's, I used to just sell the files directly and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, These days when you buy an ebook from me directly, um, you get sent a BookFunnel link, which gives you all the formats and and any tech support you need to get it onto the device the way you want it. Okay, that's right. Yeah, because you know there's all sorts of you know every device is a different size and prefers a different form. And there's there's a million different little technical things that could go wrong. So yeah. it's much better that we have professionals for handling that. So yeah, book funnel for the win. Okay, right, right. And um, um, for the paper books, for the physical mm-hmm. books. Um, uh, you say that you are um, uh, funnel, funneling people uh, to your to your shop, your own shop, yeah. uh, to to get the books from uh, from you. But um, do you uh, handle the the uh, like the, the printing and the shipping of the books directly? No, or you... God, no. Okay, <laughs> I have a life. <laughs> I okay. have better things I to do than package yeah. your books. Okay, now the Back in the old days, you had to do a print run and then you pack and ship the books. Yeah. And that is a nightmare because it's very common you know, to get a decent price on your books. You have to be printing maybe 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000, yeah. something like that. And that's a lot of books taking up a lot of space in your house, right? And then you have to pack and ship each book as the order comes in and it is a giant pain. So in the beginning, I was just using Lightning Source and that is a print-on-demand printer where, let's say you go and buy my book on Amazon um, or order it in a bookstore or wherever, um, the signal goes to the printer, the printer prints, takes the money and prints and ships the book and then sends me some of the money 90 days later, right? Okay. Then for, um, and then later on, Kindle started doing print books as well. And it's worth doing um, paperbacks through Kindle because Amazon will prioritize in their nasty little algorithms okay. books that are books that they are getting more money from, and they get more money off the book if it's a Kindle file or if it's printed by them and shipped by them, right? Yeah. So they will, you know, if you have a paperback or hardback or whatever with them, um, and through or through Lightning Source, you're more likely to be visible on Amazon if it's printed by Amazon. So I have, all of my books are also printed on KDP, Amazon's publishing side of things. Kindle Direct Publishing, it stands for. Okay, so, but then the, okay, I've been selling eBooks directly since about 
2012, right? And I used Celts to start with. Um, in 2016, I shifted to Gumroad. And last year, I shifted to Shopify. And the reason for that is simple. A company in the UK called Book Vault, V-A-U-L-T, yeah, Book Vault, um, they created an integration. They are a print-on-demand company, right? They created an integration with Shopify, which means that people can go onto my Shopify store at swordschool.shop and they can buy a paperback or a hardback and that signal goes to Book Vault, Book Vault, print and ship the book and off it goes. And the great thing about that is Shopify take the money and they give me the money, all of it, mm-hmm. right? I have to pay the printer, okay, right? But I keep a certain amount of money, uh, 25 quid, 50 quid or something on my account at the printer's which is enough to cover at least a few orders, right? And then I keep topping up my account at the printers as necessary, but the money for the printing is going to me first and then to the printers, right? Whereas with Ingram Spark, it goes, which is the new version of Lightning Source, mm-hmm. um, with Ingram Spark, it goes to the printers. They hold it for 90 days and then they yeah. send it to me. And on Amazon, it goes to KDP and they hold it for. 30 or 60 days, I forget which, and then they send it to me. But through Shopify, the money comes to me and then I send the required amount to the printer, right? Okay. And the difference that makes fundamentally is you can afford to advertise, right? Because the problem with advertising, let's say you're doing an ad campaign on Facebook and let's say it starts to do really well and you're, you're getting loads and loads of sales, but you have to wait 90 days to get the money from those sales. That means yeah. that you don't have the money to put into more ads. You can't afford to up your advertising budget because the money hasn't come in yet. And by the time that money comes in, the zeitgeist for that ad has gone, right? Whereas, you know, I was running Facebook ads for uh, my Medieval Longsword book on, um, on my Shopify store in January, February. And, okay, really it broke even because I paid a professional to do the ads for me and I'm paying for shipping and a chunk of the money goes to postage and shipping if it's the physical mm-hmm. book that's being bought and so on. So basically it broke even, right? But I could have kept that going forever because the money to pay the ads goes out later than the money comes in yeah. from the books, right? So the cash flow is just much, much more positive um, with the Shopify book file integration than it ever was with Ingram Spark, Lightning Source or KDP. I see. I see. Mm. And, um, and well, you are also uh, working with a team, which means uh, you keep them on your workflow for future projects, no? I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I have, I have, there's one freelancer who is on retainer. That's my assistant, Katie. She does the uh, podcast transcriptions, podcast uploading. Basically, I needed her when I started the podcast. I didn't actually. We didn't actually start working together until the podcast had been going for six months. And then suddenly the whole podcasting got a lot easier because, because she is very good at keeping everything organized, keeping everything straight, making sure the right thing gets uploaded to the right platform at the right time, all that sort of stuff. I am rubbish at that. Um, she also schedules my newsletter because she's much better at that sort of thing than I am. Um, but then I have, yeah, my, my graphic designer for layout. I have a separate person for covers now. I have a separate person for Facebook ads, but they're freelancers. And when I have a project for them, then I ask them to do it. So I'm okay. not, they're not on, they're not on retainer. 
Um, I don't have any full-time staff except me. Okay. No, well, but um, I don't think uh, that um, in this uh, in these times it makes a lot of sense unless you are running a, a really large operation, no? Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, for, 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 for the kind of activity you're describing, um, this is smart and it seems to work well. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's it, it feels more ethical because my freelancers... Um, you know, I'm, I hope a good customer, you know, mm -hmm. I pay them on time. The moment, you know, when the bill comes in, I pay it straight away. Um, I don't argue with them about how much I should be paying them. And, you know, I've been working with Beck, my, my interior layout designer off and on for over a decade now. So clearly she's, she's happy to keep working with me. <laughs> okay. Um, seems so. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, if someone wasn't able to afford uh, your, your paper book, mm -hmm. um, you would gladly send them a, 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 an ebook. E uh, PDF. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, let's talk about prices. So, um, yeah, sure. How, how do you set uh, the price for a book? Okay. On Amazon, you don't have much choice. Okay. Because. Because on Amazon, an ebook that is priced between $2.99 and $9.99, you get 70% of the royalties on. Okay? 70% royalty. Okay. Under $2.99 or over $9.99, and those prices haven't changed in a decade, you get 35%. So in other words, I could, if I charge £15 for an ebook on Amazon, I would make less money yeah. than charging $9.99. It's insane, okay. right? So on Amazon, I charge the maximum on most of my books, frankly, because they're a lot of work, it's a niche product, and honestly, it's worth it. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not producing, I don't know, a novel a month and trying to entertain people for two hours. I'm producing, like, high-level, like, non-fiction, research, develop, worked-on stuff that a small market really wants, and so I price it as high as I can on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, I have higher prices on my own store and on Kobo because honestly, $9.99 for that much work is a joke. Yeah. Um, paperbacks are somewhere around the £25, oh. €25 Euro mark. It, it costs, thing is, you have to set it in a particular currency on whichever platform you're on. Mm -hmm. And the way that it converts the local currency is a little bit different every time. So it's, yeah. it's like, eh, I don't know. Like magic, yeah. Yeah. So the thing about paperbacks is they need to actually have a good margin on them. And when I was selling the paperbacks through, as I still am, through Amazon integrated with KDP or through whatever other bookseller integrated with Ingram Spark, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not getting anything like all the money. So let's say £25 is the sale price. Amazon will take maybe 10 and the printing will be maybe five. And so 90 days later, I'll get maybe 10. It's actually less than that, right? Um, on Shopify, my, my own store, I make significantly more per book, but it is much more expensive to get people onto the Shopify store in the first place, advertising yeah. costs and that kind of stuff, right? Okay. So, so the cost of sales is higher on Shopify when I'm selling direct. So the margins, I keep the price about the same. So the margins are much, much better. 
but more of that margin is going towards actually getting somebody onto that website. Yeah, I, um, I understand. Yeah. It makes sense. And hardbacks are fantastic because they don't cost that much more to produce, but you can sell them for a lot more, right? And I am shameless about my hardbacks being expensive because that's what they're supposed to be. They are, the hardbacks are there so that people who really want to support my work and can afford to do so can pay much more for the same book, right? Yeah. And they get the shiny hardback and that's lovely, right? Um, and there are cheaper options if they need it. Exactly. There are cheaper options if people need it. Yeah. Including email me and I'll send you any book you like for free. Okay. That's, that's great. Uh, so, um, just to, 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 to make it clear, um, You don't set uh, the price of the book based on the book itself, but no. more on, on the uh, on how the market defines prices for that kind of yeah. product. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are what, one way to set a price is you look at the production costs and mm -hmm. you add a margin, say, yeah. I don't know, 100% of production costs, so you double it, or 50% of production, or whatever, and that's your price. That is the stupidest way to price anything that the world has ever come up. I mean, it makes no sense at all, right? Um, a book is worth what someone wants to pay for it, right? Yeah. I mean, my 1610 Capoferro, I can get that information for free on the internet, but I paid more for that than I did for a car because it's worth it to me to have yeah. that physical object in my house and I fucking love it. And it's a fantastic thing and I'm not sorry at all, right? Um, but so the the... The value of the book to the reader, um, it's, I mean, when you, when you think of books generally, right, a book that really helps you with a problem or a book that gives you six months or a year of stuff to do in your favorite hobby or whatever, that's mm -hmm. worth an awful lot more than the cost of a paperback. Yeah, it right? is. So, um, yeah, so I, with paperbacks, I try to price the value. Um, but honestly, the best, um, Okay, all books suffer from a price anchoring problem in that when you think paperback, most people think mass-produced fiction title at, say, $8.99 paperback, right? Because that is printed in China in print runs of $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever. Yeah. The unit cost of the publisher is about 50p, right? It's insane. But um, a specialist nonfiction, like, for example, an academic book, produced by an academic publisher, can easily be 60 or 70 quid. But generally speaking, those are only bought by institutions. So the, the book market is massively anchored down, okay? Which is why I can charge $300 for an online course that has the same content as one of my books that the paperback would be literally a tenth of the price. Okay. Yeah? Because... The course, courses are anchored much higher. It has nothing to do with the cost of production. And it has nothing to do with how long it takes to produce. I mean, I can produce a course in a week and I can produce a book in a year, right? Okay. So, okay, that's not strictly fair because like my Medieval Longsword course was based on my Medieval Longsword book. And that Medieval Longsword book took me 10 years of research and two years of writing. Right. So actually, the course has like a dozen years of work put into it. It's just the it takes a long time to type out a book. It takes a lot less time to shoot some videos. Um, yeah, the, the the more 
projects uh, you you develop, I guess, uh, the more they feedback into one another. So right. at the end, it is hard to say how much work went into something. But uh, yeah, yeah, I understand what what you mean. The, the actual production of the yeah of the the production of a course yeah. is significantly easier and cheaper than the production mm -hmm. of a book. But you can sell a course for a lot more than you can sell a book for. That's interesting. Okay, um, and that's just to do with anchoring. It's got nothing to do with value, and it's got nothing to do with Um, well, it has it has to do with what people are willing to pay. And again, I, I like having my courses priced nice and high because I make lots of money on them, which means I can afford to give them away for free to anyone who can't afford them. Right? Yeah, I know. And, you know, I give away hundreds of courses every year to people who contact me saying, um, I'm really, really interested in this course, but I can't afford it. Blah, blah, blah. And so I go, well, okay, here you go. Yeah. Or, or tell me how much you can afford to pay and I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a discount coupon for that amount. Like, because... You know, no amount of me saying, well, no, it's a $500 course, you have to pay $500. No amount of that is going to make somebody who doesn't have $500 give me $500 for a course that fundamentally is not going to feed their children. Yeah. Right? It's, we're, in, we're, in the, we're in the luxuries and unnecessaries market here. I know. Right? So, so it's just, you know, it's, it'd, be a, it'd be absurd and unethical to demand high prices for these things. I ask high prices, and if people can't mm -hmm. afford to pay them, they can pay pretty much whatever they want. Uh, that makes total sense to me. Uh, I have always uh, defended those kind of of, um, of attitudes, uh, like the one for ebooks, for for instance. I think that uh, yeah. the more people that get to your product, uh, typically, the better it is for you in the yeah, long run. Absolutely. If you, if you are absolutely. producing, if you produce just one uh, one instance of whatever a book or, or a video or whatever, then you really have to to make uh, that work. But if yeah. you are uh, developing an audience, uh, what you want that, that audience is to be to be big, yeah, to be as wide as possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, one one uh, one question that uh, that uh, we left behind. Um, you did mention uh, that the first book uh, that you self-published, um, you did it through a Kickstarter campaign to 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 raise the money. Yeah. Right? So yeah. through uh, it was Indiegogo. No, it was a crowdfunding Indiegogo. campaign. Okay, okay. Indiegogo. It wasn't Kickstarter, okay. but same difference. Okay. But the reason I used Indiegogo was because in 2012, I think it was, when I did mm -hmm. this for the first time. Yeah. The only crowdfunding platform that you could use if you had if you were registered as a company in Finland was Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. Kickstarter had not expanded to Europe yet. Right? You had to be in the US or the UK to use Kickstarter mm -hmm. at that point. Otherwise I probably would have used Kickstarter. Okay. But I've done everything every crowdfunding campaign I've done, I've done I think six, um, has been on Indiegogo because the first one was on Indiegogo and it went fine and it worked just fine yeah. and yeah. Okay, no, but, no, um, no reason to change. The question was: um, uh, You did use uh, crowdfunding for that the first book. Yeah. Um, um, do you uh, do it uh, regularly for 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 your later uh, books, or um, do you think it is an uh, interesting way to sell a book? Maybe have people pre-order it, not necessarily through Kickstarter or Indiegogo through a platform, but maybe even your own. Uh, Um, mailing list or, or your own shop. Do you have yeah. people pre-order your books? Yes, absolutely. So the a, a proper crowdfunding campaign is a lot of work, right? It takes okay. a lot of planning, a lot of marketing, and 
it has all sorts of expenses associated with it that you don't necessarily see. Well, for example, the platform takes 10% off the top. And then there's transaction fees at another 5%. So 15% has evaporated before you even see it, right? And that's a lot of money, okay? So there are costs associated with it that are uh, over and above the time it takes to prepare the campaign properly. And it does take preparation and to do well, okay? So there's that. Um, I routinely, these days, when I've finished a book, I put the hardback on pre-order. And people who pre-order the hardback get the current draft in its basic form as a PDF, just so they can read the book if they want straight away. And okay. when the book comes out, I go into the back end of the print-on-demand service and I have their books printed and shipped, right? And it works pretty well because it's, it doesn't, it's not nearly as, um, uh, what's the word? It doesn't raise nearly as much money as doing a crowdfunding campaign, but... It does, but it doesn't take nearly so much time and it doesn't have all those absurd additional expenses associated with it. Right. Okay. So I would, I would make more money if I did it through a crowd, proper crowdfunding campaign, but I make enough money to cover the, basically my freelancers' costs, you know, layout, cover design, that kind of stuff. I make enough money to cover all those costs plus something over. Um, which sort of helps me see the book through to being published. Okay. I, only, I, only, I would only start a crowdfunding campaign or pre-sell the book when the book is actually written. So basically when it's out of my head mm-hmm. and it's off to the professionals to turn from whatever format I've written it in into something that can be printed and shipped. Okay. Right? So I don't, want, I don't want the pressure of having sold a book I haven't written yet. Yeah, that's... that's- that's, that's a good way for, for yeah. authors to go mad. Yeah, it doesn't uh, seem like a good idea. Yeah. Although, although it's how the industry works. Most yeah. books in the, in the commercial publishing industry, you sell the book proposal and then you write the book. So you've been paid to write the book, right? Which yeah, is pr- uh, too much pressure. Then you get these books on series which never end or never get right. Uh, finished, right? Oh. Yeah. Okay, um, so... so um, so you, you would say that uh, some form of pre-order uh, is uh, a relevant, uh, relevant part of your, of your um, publishing cycle um, to, to, to yeah. finance the physical production of the... Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I've also done it for... I mean, I produced an audio book um, of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defense, and mm-hmm. I had two professional narrators, one doing uh, original pronunciation, one doing modern pronunciation, mm-hmm. and... You know, and that was a lot of money and it was very speculative and I, it's way outside what I normally do. And so mm-hmm. I thought I better crowdfund that to make sure I can actually pay these people. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I did the same for my card game because again, I had no experience yeah. producing a card game. <laughs> so we, we had the game design was basically finished. The basic artwork concept was done and we had mm-hmm. the artwork for three or four cards maybe four or five so we had the game mechanics you could play the game already um and we had the artwork concepts done and so basically what we were raising money to do was produce the artwork and get these decks printed and shipped and we raised mm-hmm. so much money we also did a couple of expansion packs and two extra characters right uh, remember that yeah. right and and but that 
that needed to be crowdfunded. And so I, I set the, I knew we'd need about 20,000 to produce the first two decks. And so I set the, the, if we don't reach 20,000, the decks don't get made because I, there's no way I could afford to put that kind of money into a game that wasn't going to sell. So, you know, for that kind of speculative project where if I, if I don't have the market for it, I can't produce it. That's where the like formal crowdfunding is super useful, right? Okay. Because if you don't reach a target, you don't have to make the thing, right? But with books, where it's basically my effort, you know, most most of the work is me doing it. I would, you know, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment that if ten people buy it, I'll be surprised, but I don't care, and I can produce that book that ten people might buy, um, and it doesn't matter because. You know, it's simple enough that I can lay it out myself, so I don't have to worry about layout costs. I can get a cover on it for a few hundred quid. Mm-hmm. And so I'm writing the book because I need to learn the thing that's in the book. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, it's, it's, there's no risk. The risk is just my time, and I'll spend my time doing this anyway. Yeah. But where, there's, you- where there's, like, where I need professionals to do most of the actual heavy lifting... That's where I, I would depend on a crowdfunding campaign to make sure that there's a market there that will actually pay these professionals for me because, you know, I don't have, I'm not sitting on, you know, shitloads mm-hmm. of cash that I can yeah. just spend on idle projects. I didn't, um, I didn't push you that, that uh, uh, line of thought that uh, you just mentioned, but you did say, say, say it at, at the beginning when we were talking about the focus of your work, why, why you yeah. do the, the books you do. And uh, I think that is uh, something that we are going to see when the, when we have all the answers of the survey together. Um, uh, I think, and it is not a surprise, most of the people in, uh, who are publishing books in HEMA today, they are doing it because they need to. They need that book. Yes. They need to work with that book. And the actual publication of the book and making it available to others, it's almost like a... a uh, um, a side effect yeah, of the absolutely. work you're doing in the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. like, the reason the reason I wrote The Dealer's Companion is because I was getting very serious about getting a proper interpretation of an Italian rapier source done. And I picked Capoferro and I thought, right, okay, I need to I need to create a proper syllabus for Capoferro. And so I thought, oh, I'll just write the book then. So I just, I wrote the book to to basically structure my research and present my findings. Yeah. Right. And the fact that a whole bunch of people found it really useful and learned rapier from it is just a bonus. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. We have talked about uh, uh, how you, you announce your books and how you talk to your audience, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, move on from sales then. About the books you have produced, because you, you, um, you, you make them uh, as you need them. Uh, rather than uh, as you think people may need them. Um, yeah. I suppose that you you will have huge um, disparities on on uh, how well they, they are received or <laughs> yeah. how many people need them, okay? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sales. Uh, do you have best yeah. bestsellers, I suppose? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My, my absolute runaway, everything else is, yeah, probably... 40% of my total book sales, and I've got about a dozen books, is the Medieval Longsword. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and 
The rest is relatively evenly divided. I mean, Doula's Companion has done really well. And my, but my workbooks don't do very well for some reason. I don't know why. They should do really well because they're, if I say so myself, they're a fucking brilliant idea. Um, but I don't think the market is really ready for it yet. They haven't quite got their head around it. Are, are you familiar with the workbooks I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, yeah. Basically, the, the, the thing that makes them different is every, they're, they're, they're sized so they're easy to write in. Mm-hmm. They're formatted for left-handers and right-handers. So the, the place for taking notes is on the left side or the right side. And every drill has a video clip associated with it with a QR code printed in the book. So you can point your smartphone at the page and yeah. it will take you straight to the video. Right. And that basically means that firstly, I can update the video at any time and the QR code will automatically link to the correct video because it mm-hmm. goes, the link goes via my website and can be redirected anywhere. Yeah. Um, and the, for the rapier ones, it was, it's organized pretty much the way I would teach rapier from the ground up. For the Armazari one, when volume two is supposed to come out this year, but I'm, I've lost a bit of steam on it. So we'll see. Um, it's actually organized so that you can go through the book in a variety of orders and find the organization of the information that works mm-hmm. for you best. Plus, it's got these QR codes and, and video stuff. But yeah. Yeah, honestly, it hasn't taken off. I mean, you would think that the workbook would outsell the training manual by 10 to 1, but it's the other way around. Uh, um, do you have any idea of why? No. no. Honestly, I think people are used to buying books and they're not used to buying workbooks. And I okay. think the market, same with, with audiobooks, right? Um, my theory and practice audiobook that came out, I want to say in 2021, something like that. Um, I paid a professional to narrate it. And I think it has now sold just about enough copies that I've got that money back. Okay. <laughs> just about, right? It's That's just tough. about broke even, right? Which is absurd, right? Because it should do really well because, you know, it's, it's theory. Right. So it's me basically describing the, the architecture underneath all the stuff that we do. It's perfect for audio because you don't, it doesn't require any kind of visual aids and you can listen to it while you're driving the car or doing the laundry or cooking dinner for your kids or whatever. Right. Yeah. It should do really well, but it hasn't. It has just gone nowhere. And I'm still producing um, an audiobook. I'm going into the studio next week to read, um, the principles of solo training because I think audiobooks are the right thing to do, and I think the market will probably catch up eventually. And when it does, I'll have three or four audiobooks out. Yay! Oh, you're you're ready for that? Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, but also also it's it's a it's a question of diversity, right? People have different disabilities, and one disability is bad eyesight. Um, yeah. Okay, when you're teaching sword fighting, teaching blind people to sword fight is a lot more challenging than teaching blind people to sing. Okay. Um, if you think about it. But still, I don't see why being blind should prevent someone having an interest in historical martial arts. And if I have audiobooks for them that, d- that don't depend in any way on visual aids, then at least they mm-hmm. can take part. At least, at least I have that for them. Right? I haven't got any plans to do an audiobook of Medieval Longsword because it depends so heavily on pictures. But... Okay. You know, eventually, I would imagine all of my books will be in audio format of Muscle and Alan, basically because it's the right thing to do. But the problem is, is it's 
is expensive to produce. So I, I can't, I can't just produce all of them just because it's the right thing to do. I have to, I have to get people buying my audiobooks mm-hmm. first. And then when at least a few of them are making some money, then I can afford to make the less popular or the less obviously audiobook suited books. I can make those into audiobooks and it doesn't really matter if I don't make so much money because there aren't that many blind people doing historical martial arts. So, yeah. And um, I agree that it is the right thing to do um, for accessibility. Yeah. Um, but uh, you also mentioned uh, uh, a very frequent use case is that we all live a busy le- uh, life and uh, maybe yeah. we need to do the cooking or or maybe we need to work uh, in our work day laying out books mm-hmm. for someone else. But yeah. uh, you, you can listen to an awful amount of stuff uh, while yeah. you're laying out a book, I can tell you. <laughs> so uh, many of us uh, are listening to lots of stuff. So yeah, I, th- I think uh, there will be a gro- growing and more growing market for, for that yeah. in the future. And, you know, my, my podcast, you would think that the podcast would sell audiobooks, but it doesn't. No? The podcast doesn't doesn't seem to be helpful for marketing purposes at all. So that's, that's weird, no? It is weird. You'd expect it to actually move the needle a lot more than it does. Um, but again, I didn't produce the podcast as a marketing effort. The podcast yeah. is a is a diversity play, right? It's it's a it's a position statement, and mm-hmm. it is a way of getting people who are less represented in historical martial arts to be more represented. Right, because representation matters. Yeah. So it's doing that just fine. So I don't really mind so much that it's that it's not even covering its costs yet after nearly three years. Okay, okay, that's interesting. I I would have thought that it would have helped, but um, yeah, and and it, again, it's early days, right? There's 150 episodes out, and we are close to 100,000 downloads as measured by the podcast app thing which is not a very accurate measurement it's probably out by at least 10 percent um but you know it's 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 making some people very happy and it's definitely improving the visibility of certain minorities in historical martial arts so you know it's it's worth doing for its own sake plus it's fun yeah well um... although although i must say it is seriously getting in the way of me writing books oh my god is it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It takes up so much time, okay. and I have limited time and energy. And yeah, it's 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 yeah. I haven't taken a single book from first idea to published since the podcast came out. Right, all the books I published since the podcast okay. came out were conceived of before the podcast was invented. Okay, that's a bit worrying. No, not really. Um, because it's not. I don't. I mean, I've got loads of books out already, so okay. yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not desperately concerned about the next one. Um, and you know, I took there was what four years between Duel's Companion and Medieval Dagger when I had two children, mm-hmm. right? And so, in that respect, the podcast is sort of like a child. Yeah. But it's it's also it's also a body of work in its own right, and there's no there's no reason to suppose that it won't eventually actually start selling books and basically upping my profile in interesting ways. And you know, it, it will probably at some point, if I keep doing it for long enough, at some point it is likely 
to start, you know, financially reimbursing me for all the money and time I put into it, right? So, and and it is a useful resource on its own. So, just as a book is a useful resource, mm-hmm. a catalogue of like, well, right now it's 150, and it's probably going to go into, into the several hundreds of these interviews. It is a body of work that is of use to the community. So, you know, I, I can't regret not getting you know Longsword Four out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, but um, the 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 idea that I am getting, and or maybe it is the idea that I am projecting, is that well, time is finite, and there are yeah. so many ars longa vita brevis, right? <laughs> Yeah, there are so many things to do, and um, I really like the podcast project because, as I told you, I I like uh, listening to podcasts uh, when I work or audiobooks or whatever. So, do you listen to this podcast when you work? Yes, of course. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, of right. course I do. Oh, um, good. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I was going to say there is uh, not that much content, uh, audio content for Hima, but that, that is not true. There are actually uh, quite a, a lot few these days. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. The, the, there used to be, the, there used not to be, but but, yeah. but these days there's quite a lot. Yeah, and uh, if you can count into that videos, um, yeah, uh, like for example Matiston, who I mean. His videos are videos, but they are basically um, like uh, <laughs> monologues. In talking, yeah. yeah. Um, there is a lot of things you, you can listen to. Sure. I, I listen to a lot of uh, sort of stuff um, while I work or, or while I do my course, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I am happy that you are producing these kind of things and other people. Good. Um, uh, but uh, to a degree, I am a bit concerned also that um, maybe there are other, other projects that, that are not getting the, the attention they might desire. But I'm sure but that's always even, true. Yeah. That is always true. Yeah. Right? No matter what project you're making, because you're spending time doing that, you're not spending time doing something else. That is always true. Yeah. And I don't even think about it really. Like, you know, time I spend in my workshop making a piece of furniture, like that cabinet mm-hmm. over there, right? Nice. Was time I did not spend writing. writing yeah. But honestly, my brain only has so much writing in it at any given time on any given day. So if I've spent the morning on the computer, it's a good idea to go and spend the afternoon making things with my hands, right? I can't, it, I, I only have a certain amount of any particular kind of activity in me. It's like, well, I mean, like mm. lifting weights, right? Yeah. You, can, you can lift weights for a certain period and then you have to stop and go and do something else. Um, and the same is true of writing, editing, you know, doing anything. Maybe, anything maybe given the way you, you, you seem to work, um, if you had the need to write a book, uh, you would do it, right? You would yeah, make the... I was writing, it's, it's Saturday today, and I was, at seven o'clock this morning, I was writing a book. Okay. So, you know, if, when, when I get gripped by a book, mm-hmm. then yes, then it just gets done. And other things get un- get left undone, and that's okay because the book has gripped me and has decided that that this is this is what has to come out now. Also, uh, I am taking the chance to say that um, I have been following your your, your as, as I think you know I have been, I have been following your your I don't know adventures in in historical martial arts and sort of stuff for some years already and the one thing that i have always found found very um, valuable very interesting mm-hmm. um is how um 
you are so very transparent about everything, about the processes, the even I the money. Yeah. yeah, I think that's um, really nice because it um, um, oh, it helps people. Uh, uh, yeah, it just inspires. Thank you, and it's it's necessary, I think, because yeah. because you know we're teaching. If I'm teaching somebody some longsword technique, they need to know, or they need to be able to check where it's coming from. Yeah, yeah, um, because otherwise, how can it? You know, I, I don't want my students taking things on trust. It, people shouldn't do stuff just, you know, guy says do this, and so they do it. Like, that's, that doesn't create the right kind of teacher-student relationship, I think. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, so I just wanted to, to take the chance to say it. Um, okay, so on the, well, on the matter of numbers and money, um, I know that uh, you don't know because I think you told me already, but uh, can you maybe guess uh, how many books have you sold in your career? Like total, total? Yeah. That's a really, really, really difficult question. Um, because uh, there's there's the first two print runs of Sorcerer's Companion, mm-hmm. the print first and second print run of The Dealer's Companion. I think I went to two print runs. So that must be at least 8,000 books there. Okay, that's a lot. Right. Um, then going back over the last 10 years or so of... Like, just, there are so many different books in so many different formats on so many different platforms. It would, yeah, it would take an accounting miracle to figure it out. I mean, I think many of the Longsword must have sold at least at least 6,000 copies by now, okay. by itself. So okay. the rest put together must have sold at least another five or 6,000, I would guess. Um, and yeah, it, it isn't helped by, you know, I've got, I mean, I, I do have all of this information somewhere, right? But yeah, it's... like the, the data sheets I get from Lightning Source or from Ingram Spark, same company, um, mm-hmm. from KDP, now from Book Vault, and then there's all the ebooks on all the different platforms. It's, yeah, I think, I guess maybe 30,000 books in total, something like that. Okay, but that's, um, that's enough um, uh, of a rough uh, estimate because um, sure. what we are talking here is um, somewhere in the early tens of thousands. Yeah. That is, um, I would say, yeah. That, that will be. Uh, a stark contrast with with some other projects uh, I know, so sure. um, so it is very interesting to to know. Um, thank you. In stark in stark contrast, high or low? Uh, well, for instance, the the uh, the data I I know because I am uh, I am in it uh, from yeah. the editora. Um, we typically um, publish the books in runs of a hundred. Um, some of them have uh, have sold like um, three runs, yeah. but that's three hundred books. Yeah. Um, in total, in aggregate, we have uh, I believe like something like twenty titles. I would have to check. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say um, six thousand two books. Maybe. Yeah, maybe around that. Yeah. Okay. And 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 um, 
we are a team of people, not yeah. working professionally on that, so not sure. working full time, of course, but we are a team, and um, we have this this kind of way of cheating, which is that I own a, a, a print house, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great advantage, and um, I mean, um, we kind of have all the the right ingredients uh, to to do this. Yeah. Um, maybe we could do it better, or, or invest more time on it on that. But ah, okay. But hang on, you're producing primarily um, like reproductions of yeah. the treatises. Okay, those sell edition, like yeah. shit. Yeah, right. They are the lowest sellers of everything by a mile. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay, my Fiore facsimile and my Vardy facsimile, they do okay. I mean, they sell more than you might expect. Um, and the, but the critical editions barely sell any numbers at all. Most people don't want to have to deal with yeah. the original. They want the, okay, here is the original, but this is how you actually do it. Yeah. Right. They want that level of, um, intervention between themselves and the book. And I view my books, my sort of training manual type books, as bridges to take people from where they are all the way back to the original book. And so hopefully by the time they've read one or two of my uh, training manual type books, mm -hmm. they will feel that they have the necessary tools to go and read the original the book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's... <clears throat> that's, you, yeah, you're not really comparing like with like if you're comparing critical editions of the originals with with modern training manuals. No, I I, I know I'm not, but that's uh, that goes on with what what I was saying that in in the current uh, scenery in HEMA, the people uh, like us who are put, uh, putting out books, uh, we are covering uh, different areas. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in a year we are publishing uh, mainly critical editions of Iberian Destreza manuals and then yeah. some some adjacent stuff, but mainly that. Um, Kidestar is doing like this facsimile reproductions, uh, very nice and very precise. Yeah. Um, uh, he's selling quite a lot of them, but he's not selling tens of thousands uh, no. of them. But he is, he, because they are so expensive, mm -hmm. his Kickstarter campaigns yeah. or Indiegogo campaigns do make in the tens of thousands, at least, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I wish, I wish his profit margins were better. I had a conversation with him about how, okay, if someone is spending three hundred dollars on a book, they could have probably afford to spend three hundred and fifty, and that way you'd make fifty dollars more than you can actually yeah. spend on things like food. So, Michael, up your prices, I said, and he was like, "Yeah, but I want to make these as accessible as possible." No, I do the accessible shit, right? The cheapest possible, cheapest yeah. practical. You know, so that people can get the information that they need, right? You're making a luxury product that is gorgeous and beautiful and done to the highest possible standards. You should charge the moon for it because people will pay it and you deserve to make an income, I said. The, the issue, uh, uh, it would be nice to have Michael here to, to, to talk it with him, but uh, I will probably... Um, uh, Talk it with him at, at, a, at a later point, but I think the issue is compound because um, uh, he, First, he comes from from the uh, week ten hour project, and yeah. from the idea of making all the sources very accessible to people right. uh, for free, uh, yeah. and, and it is in the motto of the ten hour of, of the yeah. week ten hour project, yeah. and. Um, and uh, then uh, he he got into producing these these facsimiles because uh, he knew that uh, good facsimiles are very uh, expensive typically 
when produced yeah. by by other uh, publishers, by other sources. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like very very expensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my um, you know, one thirty three cost me about eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So yeah. when you compare eight hundred dollars with with um, the kind of technical books that we may uh, buy uh, for fifty bucks, um, yeah. okay, that's a huge disparity. I, I think he's trying to bridge uh, that the gap. But but I agree yeah. with you that he could probably raise it um, fifty or a hundred bucks, and he would still be in the midpoint between the two, yeah. and it would be good for him. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, let's hope he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, okay. I told him. To, I told him to his face, like in person, the last time I saw him. So, which was last year. So, yeah, we, you know, well, we were talking about these things in Brescia, and uh, we will probably talk about that uh, soon too. So, okay, sure. okay, okay. So, uh, back back on the track. Um, um, so, uh, okay. So, let's say about thirty thousand, uh, thirty thousand books. Okay, something like that. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Um, are you comfortable with saying or estimating how much that has earned you? It really varies year on year, and it varies hugely from um, sort of book type to book type and platform to platform. So, you know, if I sell a person direct through my Shopify store, mm -hmm. if I sell them a hardback, I will make a lot of money on that yeah. transaction. Whereas if I'm selling them an ebook on some discount ebook store somewhere, then mm -hmm. I'm making almost nothing, right? And yeah. it's the same book. So yeah. it's very hard to say. Um, but my best estimate is like the best year I've had so far was in terms of book sales was the financial year 21, 22. And my book sales there were about $45,000. Okay. That's, that's, that's money to me, $45,000. That's uh, um, money to you, as in, uh, let's say, the, the, the margin for you. Discounting yeah, the, the, the costs of uh, printing the yeah, book, yeah. discounting layout. This, um, let me think. Um, there was probably... Uh, okay, I was running some ads then, and there was some layout. The thing is, the layout cost for the book... Mm -hmm. As a as a proportion of the cost, uh, as a proportion of the price, it goes. The first book is very expensive, and every book yeah. after that is a lot cheaper. And by the time you're like two thousand books mm -hmm. in, right, yes, the proportion yeah. the proportion of layout costs almost nothing. Negative. So depending on how old the book is, layout is already being completely paid for usually. But should we say, mm -hmm. should we say, I probably spent in that year about. A total of maybe ten thousand on things like layout and advertising, okay, and and other publishing costs, assistance and whatnot. Okay, that's that's uh, nice. Okay, um, that's an interesting thing there. Uh, also, that um, when you are running a, a publishing project, uh, a publishing mm -hmm. house, um, yeah, call it whatever. Um, well, we call it Spada yeah. Press, so it is a publishing house. Yeah, you, you, sorry. It's called Spada Press, Spada my Press. publishing okay. house. Spada Press, yeah. Okay, that's nice. Um, okay, then when when you're running that, the 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 back catalog that you have, um, yeah. that's uh, that's your real asset. I mean, yeah, absolutely. 
you may produce uh, the next book that you produce may be an absolute bestseller and uh, I don't know, mm -hmm. end up uh, selling millions of copies. Well, but who knows? But um, fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, in a more realistic uh, manner, uh, foreseeably, um, what uh, what we know is that the books we have, um, we can keep reprinting and uh, yeah. selling them. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, well, an important capital, right? Yeah, and I mean, like, Medieval Longsword has been selling regularly and well for 10 years. Yeah. Right. So if, if a publisher wanted to buy it off me, mm -hmm. um, I would, or any book off me, I would be asking a lot of money because I'll be thinking in terms of how much money is that book likely to make me over the next 50 years. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. And, you know, weighting it for risk and weighting it for inflation and interest and whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody offered me 200 grand for the money of a long sort, I'd probably take it. But, You know, no publisher in their right mind <laughs> would offer me that kind of money because yeah. for them it won't make that kind of money. Yeah, because um, well, this is vastly, I think, outside of the of the uh, immediate purpose of the of the survey. But um, this is already running long. <laughs> um, right. I'm in a rush. Um, I think that. Um, There is, uh, as you said, a space for, for publishing houses, but um, for many, many projects like ours, well, uh, well, I mean, historically, you didn't have any option but to go to a publisher to get a book done. Um, mm. Maybe you could skip the publisher and uh, go to the press yourself and then try to uh, sell the yeah, copies. Well, no, okay, but, but going back like a hundred years, Bertrand yeah. Russell's classic philosophy work, I'm forgetting the title of it, Cambridge University Press refused to publish it because they said they couldn't make back their money on it. And so he paid them to publish it. Yeah. And so he get, got all the money off it. And that was a really good deal for him. And a colleague of my father, my father was a veterinary surgeon, and a colleague of his wrote the definitive book on diseases in pigs. And, okay. And no publisher would touch it. And so he published it himself in the 1960s, I want to say, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And it did really, really well. And every every veterinary student in the world was buying a copy of his book on diseases in pigs. And so it did really well. And these publishers came to him saying, well, actually, we've changed our mind. Can we please publish your, your pig disease book? And he said, no, because I'm making so much money off it. Thank you. You can <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> you should have taken it when I offered it the first time. I'm not sure if that's what he actually said. But the thing is, self-publishing has been around... See, Self-publishing has this weird sort of like, it sounds a bit kind of like a bit masturbatory, right? A bit sort of vanity yeah. press sort of thing. And that's really not what's going on for most people who are publishing their own work. I think independent publisher is a better term. And I also mm -hmm. think creator-owned publishing is a better term, right? Okay. You, don't, you don't say a painter is self-published when they paint a painting and put it on the wall and somebody comes and buys it, mm -hmm. right? That's not self-publishing. That's That's... That's painting. That's creating your work of art and selling it. You see what I mean? Okay, so, so I like I like the the, the concept uh, because I su support it. I mean, um, I work in the in the in the publishing industry, but I right. think that um, we we need to, to be shifting gears. And you are right that maybe my statement was very uh, absolute. Um, uh, there have always been people who who um, 
um, who were able took, to publish them, yeah, to, who, to do yeah. it themselves, yeah, or who took uh, in, into the, their own hands to do it, yeah. Um, but um, well, it's a lo- it's a lot easier now. It's That's a lot easier now. That's the idea. It's yeah. now it's, it's it's now it's now an industry of its own. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's um, got its own like like trade associations and everything. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors, for example. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I was not going to ask that because I assumed that uh, that you uh, wouldn't be part of a guild or association. But um, I was. Yeah, it's okay. It's it's just it's just okay. Basically, I'm a member of that particular guild, not because I particularly care about about independent publishing or self publishing. The publishing isn't the point to me. Mm-hmm. The point is getting is getting my books into readers' hands. And this is yeah. just the best way to do it, right? But there are all sorts of resources that the Alliance provides, like, for example, like discount codes for uploading print files to printers that normally charge for that, for instance. Um, okay. and, and access to vetted industry professionals when you want to hire a freelancer, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all, there's all sorts of like resources and stuff that they do. And, you know, it's, it's the publishing industry has basically been screwing most of their authors for most of the last century, yeah. and this is an organized resistance against that. <laughs> so, I'm quite happy to be part of that too. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I, um, I know what you're talking about, and uh, yeah, I think that um, it is very interesting that, that people are taking advantage of these new uh, tools and resources. Mm. And, um, it's a bit like HEMA, no? I mean, people yeah, yeah, have absolutely. always been doing HEMA, but in the last maybe, I don't know, 30 years, um, the, all these kind of resources that have democratized access to information, communications, yeah. to, to build your own network of people interested in whatever it is that, that you want to do, publishing yeah. or, or, or playing with source. Um, well, it's ch- changing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's great. And, and the tools we have now are unrecognizable from what it was even 10 years ago, like yeah. Vellum for layout, book funnel for ebook distribution, the Shopify integrate, the Shopify integration with book vault that allows me to sell print on demand books direct. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think the Kindle became available in like 2007. Maybe something like that. So, I mean, e- like the whole ebook revolution has happened in the last 15 years. So, and and also most independent authors mostly sell ebooks. Yeah, I, according, I, I according know. to the yeah according to what the alliance say. Because again, because I'm a member of the alliance of independent authors, I get access to all of their research stuff, and yeah, it's it's fascinating to see. Also, like most of the kind of publishing industry picture that gets put out in various newspapers or whatever, mm-hmm. it doesn't even include. Self-published no, or independently published stuff, which is missing literally half the market. So there is there is a huge nonsense. discourse, um, and and I know that it is not um, the same everywhere. For instance, um, the the ebook market in the uh, English speaking languages is um, is very large, um, yeah. because you are not selling only for. For the language, uh, English-speaking language uh, countries, right. which, which um, of course are already very large themselves, but you are selling yeah. for the whole, well, yeah. not the whole of the world, but a huge part of the population of the world. 
Um, yeah. So the market there is very large. But for instance, in the in, in the Spanish language and in the Portuguese language, uh, there is this discourse that um, well, the ebook uh, doesn't really take off. I mean, it's there, but uh, it, it doesn't pay sales. And that is not true. It is the publishing houses that are not making it work. But, yes. Uh, Independent uh, publishers. Yeah. Yeah. They really are making it work. And I know people that oh, are yes. ma- making a living out of uh, publishing their own very niche books. Books, yeah, in uh, Spanish or Portuguese or yeah. Yeah, any other language. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, publishing houses, the problem with them is they are institutions that move extremely slowly. Yeah. And have been historically very, very slow to move with the times. I mean, yeah. they, they pretty much, they still somewhat resent the invention of the printing press, I think. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably, yeah. All, all this this um, modern stuff of producing books by batches and not yeah, one although, by one. Yeah, although, although <laughs> um, it's, hang on one second, where is it? Ah, let me see. Ah. I reorganized my bookshelf recently, and that was a disaster. It was a mistake. That's, yeah, it always is. Look, this is a this is a commercially published academic book called by uh, B. Anne Clusty, the modern yeah, ethic in early modern Germany. Right? Great. Book. I have it. Okay, yeah. published by Palgrave Macmillan. Okay. Yeah. Proper academic publisher, super yeah. fancy and whatever. And if you look on the back page, right. CPI, Anthony Rowe, Eastbourne, UK, da 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 Okay. This particular one um, may not have gone through Lightning Source. So maybe I picked the wrong one off the shelf. But I have another, I certainly have at least one Palgrave Macmillan book that was, no, this is CPI, Anthony Rowe. So this, this is actually, this is printed um, in a print run. But that is almost certainly printed on the same machines that my Ingram Spark printed books mm-hmm. are printed in, right? Yeah. And the a lot of their their titles are printed by Lightning Source, which is Ingram Spark, which is the exact same company that most um, independent publishers are using for their print on demand wide distribution outside Amazon. So I mean, we're not just using the same um, you know editors graphic designers, layout artists, and whatnot. The books are coming from the same printers, <laughs> right? There is no quality distinction to be made between a well-produced, independently published book and a well-produced, commercially published book. Um, nowadays, I would say there is not. If, if you want yeah. to make a, a, let's call it a proper book, um, mm-hmm. a nice book, a well, yeah. well-made book, uh, everyone has the access to the tools to right. do it. Yeah. yeah, it's massive. It's, it's not like a, a, a closed uh, um, circuit or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you still get like independently published books that are shit, but you also get yeah. commercially published books which are, sh- which are shit. So, lots know. of them. Yeah. <laughs> lots of them. So, you know, it's, it's not the quality distinction that the publishing houses wanted us to believe that it was 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so, to, to, to wrap up, um, yeah. uh, there were these these uh, open questions at the end of the questionnaire mm-hmm. um, that uh, I believe that you have already answered very lengthily. Um, but <laughs> you see why I didn't want to type out the answers, yeah, right? I, this would have taken I, I, ages. I, I, 
And this has been great. I mean, yeah, um, much more fun. <laughs> yeah, much more fun. And and this is the kind of thing that that, that I really um, uh, wanted to do. But uh, mm -hmm. I know that, I know that some people are more comfortable on the written form. So well, sure. putting it out uh, as a uh, written questionnaire, I think it was uh, a first step. But this is great. I, I had a lot of fun. And if if you want to to uh, summarize some I don't know word of advice or, or some mm -hmm. experience uh, for someone who would want to to start their own uh, um, historical martial arts publishing thing, mm -hmm. um, what would you say to them? Um, okay, there are several layers to the process. There is writing the book. There is producing the book, and then there is selling the book, okay? And traditionally, writers did the writing and publishers did the producing and the selling. Mm -hmm. These days, even if you're commercially published, you will do most of the selling. The publisher just does the producing of the book, right? Let, uh, layout and cover design, that kind of thing. Okay, and for that service, you are paying them 90% of the covered price of the book, right? Now, okay. Yeah. They don't get, they don't get the whole cover price. They usually sell it to a bookseller or whatever. They're getting maybe half of the cover price and they're giving you 10% of the total cover price. So they're ending up with a relatively, should we say like 30% of the total cover price? But if you, yeah. if you are willing to put in some money and time up front, you can do that producing process yourself. It's very easy and uh, straightforward anyway. And you don't have to involve a publisher the publisher will not sell your book for you unless you are already famous right if you are lee child producing his i don't know 20 millionth um jack reacher novel they will pay to put adverts on the sides of buses for you and they'll get you on oprah or whatever now right because you're worth it to them but if it's your first book your chance of getting that kind of attention is almost zero right so now the reason that I publish people who are long dead, like Fiore and Vadi, and my own books is really simple. The reason I don't take on other authors is because you, the author retains copyright of the work for 75 years after their death. Yeah. Okay. Which means to ethically take on an author, I have to have a system in place for calculating their royalties and sending them the money according to some regular schedule, usually monthly, quarterly, or annually, mm -hmm. right? And I have to be able to keep doing that for 75 years after this person has died, which means I have to have some kind of corporation with those systems in place to keep basically, you know, when the book sales continue, as hopefully they will, and most authors get a big bump when they die. Right, mm -hmm. you know. Imagine the best thing I could possibly do for my short-term book sales is die. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. um, but 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 um, that's not good for the long okay. term. But let, let's not. No, 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 no. But but, but that that would it would definitely it would definitely create a bump in sales. Right, but um, but that kind of infrastructure is difficult to build, and. Honestly, I don't see any historical martial arts publishers who have that kind of infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? 
Now, Penguin Random House has that kind of infrastructure, mm -hmm. and they have been going on for a very long time indeed, and there are authors who are now out of copyright who were originally published by some you know previous version of Penguin Random House. Um, and so that kind of kind of long-term corporate obligation mm -hmm. to to process royalties for 75 years after the death of the author, that is a very high-level, hard problem. And if you're going to go into business publishing other mm -hmm. people, you know, finding layout designers is easy, getting the books published is easy, selling the books is relatively easy, but creating the infrastructure where you can fulfill your legal obligations to the author's estate, that's hard. And I don't well, see anybody doing it. Okay, um... I'm not sure I follow you there because um, I understand the the, 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 the the concept and I know about the the, the copyright laws and the, mm -hmm. uh, what is out to the to the heirs of the author. But um, the uh, the rights uh, that remain with them, um, well, what remains with them is the rights. If 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 a publishing house uh, ceases to operate or to sell a book. The rights return to the author or to sure. the heads of the author, so yes. they could um, uh, move that uh, book to another to another house and keep selling it. Yeah, they could. Uh, they could. I, I know but, but these that it days, is not easy. Yeah, but the and these days, okay, it used to be print runs were finite and they would be sold and that would be that, and eventually the book would go yeah. out of print, right? And the publishers could just let the book go out of print. These yeah. days. The book will stay in print forever. If it's printed on demand, there's no reason why that book will ever go out of print, which okay. means that the, the publishers will have to make a formal decision to stop that publication. And, okay, yeah. I'm not saying it can't be done. And the simplest solution would be an author going to a publisher and saying, okay, I will give you publishing rights to this book for 10 years, yeah. for instance. That's a commitment that I could reasonably make. But I can't make a commitment to 75 years after the death of the author because I'm not interested in, in, in creating a corporation. Or for a minimum number of, of, of books sold or, or for a minimum amount. I mean, for instance, um, as long as you are selling, I don't know, uh, yeah. whatever, a hundred or thousand copies of my book each year, uh, you can keep but then, selling. But then, yeah, but then, you're, but then you're into contract law, yeah. which is complicated yeah. and difficult <laughs> and expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, basically, it's, it's just an area of admin that I don't want to go into. I, I just don't, I just, yeah. I just don't want to do it because, yes, I mean, you don't have to do it. You don't have, the, the author retains copyright for 75 years after their death. You don't have to continue publishing their book for all of that time. Mm -hmm. But if you do your job properly as a publisher, if you, if you actually do the work you're supposed to do for that author, Their mm -hmm. book damn well should be making you money for 75 years after their death, right? And so, so reverting it to the author's estate is basically screwing their estate because then they have to find another publisher and da 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 da. da. You know, it's like it's like it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. Okay, well, I can I can respect that. Um, yeah. Okay. So so you um, so yeah so going going into business mm -hmm. generally implies. Um, as a publisher, generally implies publishing books, not just your own. Um, and okay, there are probably better solutions than the ones that I've come up with. Um, but I think you have to think about how you're going to handle these copyright issues 
like many years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, come up with some ethical solution that is in the best interest of both the publisher and the author. Tricky. Okay. Okay. So your, your um, best advice to someone uh, maybe thinking about uh, setting out of a publishing house for historical martial mm-hmm. arts is uh, don't do it. <laughs> Pub- publish your own, publish yeah. your own books, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, and, and the thing is, there are, if, let's say you've written a book and mm-hmm. you don't particularly want to go with a regular publisher for whatever reason. Maybe it's just not interesting enough for them. Um, there are services that will get your book into the into the world, which you pay for, like um, I think it's one of London called, I think it's called White Fox Publishing, something like that, which basically does the work of a of a regular publishing house, mm-hmm. but you keep the, the you keep the royalties, you pay them in advance, right? Yeah. So it's like it's like a vanity press, I guess. But the difference yes. is instead of instead of just producing a you know five hundred copies of the hardback and there you go now you go sell them as most vanity presses will do mm-hmm. what this will do is, it, is it, what some of these companies will do is they will get your book into the print on demand infrastructure help you create the necessary accounts do that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. then then you're getting paid by Amazon you're getting paid by Ingram you're getting paid by Book Vault and whoever else. Um, So there, there is there is help to be had. It's not you no longer have to have to figure it all out yourself. Which I I had to figure it all out myself because I started doing this early on in the mm-hmm. self publishing revolution. But these yeah. days, I mean, even my assistant Katie, you know, she has like three or four authors on her role now, and you know, she's exactly the kind of person who you could hire to get your book from. Okay, I finished my book. Um, now what do I do with it? Yeah, she has all of those skills. Yeah, um, that is a, a direction in which the um, uh, publishing industry, not just the publishing houses, but mm-hmm. everything to do with it, the, the, the presses, the people who do layouts, design, um, distribution, promotion. I think that is a direction in which the industry is moving, um, at least partially, um, because At least some of us, uh, we are recognizing these trends that we are talking about. That authors want to have better control of their work. They want to also to have better revenues, typically. Yeah. And um, so we, I think that at least partially, we need to turn into a service industry for them. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe you don't want to deal with uh, all these different uh, services or uh, accounts, or maybe you are not sure how to. Uh, how to perform your your the promotion of your book? We can help you with that. Yeah. Um, that there are lots writing. of people who yeah. will who will do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, on the production side, on the marketing side, sometimes yeah. both. Okay, um, okay. So so um, I think that's uh, very interesting uh, for people who are um, into making books, <laughs> yeah. books and uh, particularly historical martial arts books um, which I am not sure there is that many of us but I think that in the um, historical martial arts community in particular mm-hmm. there is an unordinate amount of people interested in book stuff yeah. beyond Absolutely. martial arts so, yes, um, I mean most, most book Um, you know, most people doing historical martial arts are book people. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we, and it's just, we are it's part of the attraction of, of yeah. historical martial arts for them, I think. We are not yeah. not we are not just sort people or, or martial arts yes. people. We are also book we people. Are <laughs> absolutely true, yeah. yeah. Although, you know, I I travel a lot to teach mm-hmm. and so I'm often staying in people's houses. And almost always when I'm staying in someone's house, the house is pretty much full of books. Yeah. <laughs> right. Almost always. Um, which yeah, helps one feel at home. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Guy. Um, oh, you're very welcome. This has been Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Or stealing it, I don't know. Um, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Denise. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for the episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember to go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll free online community for sword people. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Katrina Malfi, who is a nutritionist or dietitian, I should say. We have a conversation about the difference. A historical martial artist, also a PhD student, a mother of four plus a lizard, an author and a sea rescue volunteer. It's a very enjoyable conversation, so you don't want to miss it, I suspect. So please go to wherever you get your podcast from and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And while you're there, if you have a moment, please do rate the show and even leave a review. It really does help. Most importantly, though, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.